Welcome to Enid Monthly In-Depth, the podcast with Enid people for Enid people. Today's guest is Dr. Sean Keels, the new lead pastor of Emmanuel Enid, one of Enid's largest churches. Sean gets in-depth about what it was like growing up in a rural South Carolina town, what it was like traveling the world with a group of strong men who carried the gospel and ripped up phone books, and what brought him to Enid, Oklahoma to take the place of a longtime pastor. You won't want to miss it. So sit back and enjoy Dr. Sean Keels. This is Robert Falk with Enid Monthly Live, and today we're talking with Dr. Sean Kills from Emmanuel Baptist Church. How are you, Sean? I'm doing great, Robert. Thanks for having me. Well, I know we've had a little bit of technical issues here today, so we're working through them, but I think we're going to be good now. Hey, we're persevering. <laughs> All right, great. Uh, well, uh, Sean, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah, so I grew up in a little town called Manning, South Carolina. Uh, Manning's a little interstate town off of I-95, and, and for those that love geography, it would be between... Uh, if, if you were at Miami, Florida, and then drove all the way to New York City, New York, it'd be in about the middle of that in a little town called Manning, South Carolina, a little farming community. Okay. Uh, and so we talked a little bit about the fact that it was kind of like the Pond Creek to yes. the, a bigger town outside. Yep. And the bigger town just outside was a lot like Enid. That's where my wife grew up. It was about 25, 30 minutes away. It's the home of Shaw Air Force Base. So like Vance Air Force Base here, the town was a little similar because of the influence of the Air Force Base. And if we wanted anything really big or wanted to go see a movie, go bowling or something like that, we would actually drive from our little town to that city because for us that was going to the city yeah same as here huh yeah yes. <laughs> except when you're an enid you go to oklahoma city that's, that's right the city. that's right uh, well tell uh, you uh you said you grew up there in south carolina your dad yeah. he started out as a farmer he, he did start out as a farmer my grandparents were actually farmers my grandfather and my dad ran it for a, a, a couple of years, went to Clemson for uh, agriculture, and then came back. My, his father died. He ran the farm for a little while. Ran, after having lived on it, gone to school for it, and then worked it for a little while, he realized he didn't want to be a farmer. So he literally drove about an hour and 20 minutes a day to the capital city to work. Uh, my mother, when we were children, stayed home, took care of us. And then as she got older, she had had a, a weight challenge, weight problem. So she joined Weight Watchers, lost 150 pounds, was able to keep it off over a good bit of time. So Weight Watchers hired her. And then she went on and worked until the Lord took her home about a decade ago. She worked for like 33 years as what they call a lecturer, kind of like a church planner. She'd go into a city, start Weight Watchers at a, at a, at a place, Grow it up, turn it over to somebody, then go to another city, start a Weight Watchers group, grow it up, turn it over to somebody, and then she'd go to another city. So she helped Weight Watchers in the southeast really grow and really proud of, of what the Lord did in her own personal journey, but also in that work there. When she passed, she was the only person at the time who had received a Lifetime Achievement Award from Weight Watchers. So my parents were very influential in my life. Obviously. Well, yeah. Well, it sounds like your mom, at least. That's yes, where you get your outgoing yeah. personality from. I think that's the way I got it. I, I, I traveled with her a lot, especially in summers, and would be a part of what she was doing. Yeah, well, that's really cool. So what kind of student were you? at? Uh, you graduated from high school there? I did, in the little town called Manning, uh -huh. Manning High School. So I graduated from high school, and honestly, I made good enough grades just so I could play sports. Uh, I had some challenges with ADD growing up, so it was hard for me to stay focused and attention, and I got bored really easily. 
So I did just enough school so that I could play sports because I absolutely love sports. I tried college for about a year, but really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So after just kind of going to class, not going to class, I decided to join the military, became a rescue swimmer in the Navy. And on the way out of the Navy, I surrendered my life to the Lord. God changed me from the inside out, gave me a, a, a fresh vision for my life. I went back to school, did really well in school now because I was studying what I was really meant to do. Mm-hmm. And then I, I really continued school for the next, oh, 30 years maybe, uh, just a little bit at a time because I, I got married, started ministry, and fast forward 30 years later, um, had the bachelor's degree, got a couple of master's degree, and, and then a doctorate degree. Actually, just graduated in 2020. So I did school along and along, but I started out not enjoying school so much. But as I would progress and really hear from the Lord what I was called to do and studying in that area, with that vision He gave me, I did really well in school. But I worked at it. Sure made it a lot easier if you, it if you like what you're easier. doing, right? Yes, it does. Well, uh, what sports did you like in high school? So in high school, in the little town we played, I would have played every sport that it had, but the three, been a really small town, the three sports that we had were football, uh, baseball, and basketball, and I, I played all three from as old as they would allow me uh, up through high school. Now, you're still in uh, very good physical shape, and so was that where you kind of learned uh, that dedication to a healthy lifestyle and lifting and, and it, that sort of thing? It is. You know, the, the, the eating part, I don't do as good as my mother did, but when she made the big transform in her life, she ate really well and was very disciplined in it. So my family grew up with that kind of stuff. So I ate in a way growing up that fed my body so that it could do some of the athletic stuff that I did. But where I really excelled, I did play basketball, football, and baseball and did really well in it as a high school and had some opportunity in college but ended up going to the um, military. But what stuck with me all the years that I, and I was able to use it in ministry later was I was a power lifter. I absolutely love lifting weights. I think I must have been maybe six, seven, eight years old, and my brother's five years older than me, so he would have been a preteen, early teen. I saw he and my dad lifting weights together one time. And I I love my dad. I'm a daddy's mama's boy, too, but love (laughs) my dad. We've got a great relationship. He's still living today, so we, we talk very regularly. But I remember seeing my dad and my brother lifting weights, and I thought, you know what? I want to do that too. And I was a little bit young. So he said, well, you can do push-ups," And he showed me how to do those and sit-ups. And I was hooked. From then, I literally lived in the weight room. Loved sports, but I really think I played sports just so I had permission to lift weights when I was in high school. Yeah. So they give me a key to the weight room kind of thing. And how old are you now? I am 52. Okay. I actually turned 52 last week. Wow. Okay. Well, happy, yeah. happy week after your birthday. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, uh, well, back then, weightlifting, I mean, there was some of that, but it wasn't near as, especially for sports, it wasn't nearly as uh, uh, integral to being a competitive high school program. It was actually really, in my area of the world too, really just getting started. So um, I, prayed for, I played for a really small private school up through my 10th grade year, and then I transferred to the, the bigger public school for um, a, a number of reasons. One, for recruiting purposes. And they just built a brand new school. And in that brand new school, they had their first real weight room. 
And man, I fell in love with that. But I can remember my football coaches wanted me to lift weights, but my basketball and my baseball coaches didn't want me to because at the time they thought it would, if you didn't stretch, obviously they thought it would uh, make us slower. But of course now basketball and, and baseball, it's a regular routine. They just have to make sure they're doing their stretching exercises. But back then there was not a big understanding because weightlifting was not as popular in high school athletics. Yeah. And uh, we uh, kind of joke for wrestling in my high school that we had a weight room, but we would just go and mess around. I mean, yeah. we didn't have, no coaches were there. We didn't know what we were doing at all. So, yeah. uh, well, so you went to college, you said, what college mm-hmm. did you go to for that? So first I went year? to the university of South Carolina. And then, uh, did you I, walk on or play, or were you just going to? No, go? I, I when I graduated from high school, I, I had some internal challenge in my own life. Uh, I had a struggle with alcohol. Started as a young teenager, so I had opportunities to play some college football, a little NAI school. But as a result of some of the bad decisions I were making, my dad actually wouldn't let me go off. So I stayed home for school, and he wanted to test the waters. So I went to the University of South Carolina in Sumter. So University of South Carolina is actually in Columbia, but they have these branch campuses. So I went to a campus in Sumter so I could live with my mom and dad and drive back and forth mm-hmm. so they could kind of keep an eye on me because I, I didn't know the Lord then. And I also was making really bad decisions because alcohol was impairing and, and uh, soon would literally almost destroy my life. So as a result of that, I actually bypassed a couple of scholarship opportunities and stayed home. After a year, realized I just wasn't a good student. Again, didn't know the Lord, didn't have my head screwed on straight. So I went in the military, honestly, trying to run away from my life. Mm. And I became a rescue swimmer because it looked challenging. And I thought if I would do something challenging, maybe it would help me get rid of the the other challenge that I had in my life. Uh, the one that was destroying me, and that was alcohol. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times we use distractions like that, yeah. uh, so something hard or challenging or yeah. uh, to, to keep our minds off of those challenges that yeah. we have in our own brains. So yeah. uh, that definitely makes sense. Well, did you did you enjoy your time in the military? Or you know, was it I more did. Of a- I, I did enjoy my time. I, I will say that I, the, the alcohol challenge that I had, it actually joined me. Uh, it went with me. Geography didn't make me better. What I needed was Jesus and and a a fresh perspective on life and a power greater than myself to help me overcome that. But I went in the military, and when I went through all my training and um, uh, rescue swimmer school and stuff, it was so challenging that that was all I could really do was just train and do the school. There were no opportunities to go out and be a part of the struggle that I had in my life. So while I did that, I did great. But once I got out of school, got to my command and started doing my normal job, over time, I couldn't handle that free time. So I found myself drinking again. So in the Navy, I ended up going through rehab a couple of times. And as I went through rehab a couple of times, God actually used that in my life for me to deal with some things in my life that maybe I had never really dealt with that could have actually pushed me uh, toward drinking. And as a result... Uh, toward the right at the end of my naval career, I surrendered my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only did I find sobriety, but I was saved from my sins. And as a result, God gave me not only a fresh perspective on life, but a power uh, from heaven to live the life that he really designed for me to live. 
Then when I came back, man, I dove into school because I actually wanted to make a difference in other people's lives. So as I started studying in school, I started making really well. But it was only because what I was studying, I knew would help me be who God wanted me to be. Was there somebody that really uh, pushed you toward that direction uh, to, to give your life to Christ? You know, there were a couple of people that were very instrumental. One was, so I, I was attached to a ship as a rescue swimmer. I was one of a couple of swimmers that we had on our ship in case anything would go wrong. Uh, obviously, a lot of times we were out in the ocean. So if anything that go wrong, we would be deployed to go rescue. Uh, when we were in the Persian Gulf, you know, we were plane guard about a mile off the coast. So if a plane got hit with a missile, the goal would be they would get over water and uh, eject. And then I would go out by helo or, or off the side of the boat if we were close or in a what's called a motor whale boat. It's like a little speedboat that would take me so that I could do that, that rescue. So I, that was kind of what I would do. So I was actually attached to a ship in my naval career. Well, in our ship, these sleeping quarters, the, the beds are stacked three high. So it's like a bunk bed to the third degree. Well, I slept on the top. Well, the guy that slept right under me was a devout follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can remember at night hearing pages turning. And I can remember looking over and seeing his light on. And we had curtains. that you, it, It's almost like you're lying in a coffin with the side of it open and you close your curtains. I can remember saying, his name was Arch. I can remember saying, hey, Arch, what are you doing? He says, Sean, you know I'm just reading the scripture. Well, I grew up in church. I, I didn't grow up in Christ, but I did grow up in church. So I wasn't opposed to the Bible or spiritual things. I had just never appropriated its message about the Lord Jesus, so I had never really walked with him. While I was religious, I didn't have a relationship. So I would periodically say, hey, Arch, why don't you read it out loud where I can hear it? And he would read it, and it would remind me of those vacation Bible schools that I used to attend as a kid or, or summer camp like Falls Creek here that I used to go to. And I would remember some of the joy that I even was able to taste a little bit and saw others experience. And there were moments where I would go, I want that. But then we would go into a port and I would have free time and I would go back into the clubs or the bars and I would get further away. And then I would come back and Arch's influence would kind of like be pulling me back toward the cross. And then we would have liberty again in another country and it would draw me away. But ultimately there was a night that through Arch's influence and a couple of others like him that God put in, in my life, that I was at a moment where I had to decide whether I really wanted to live because I was kind of spiritually bankrupt or whether I might actually take my own life. And at that moment, God put a song in my mind that I learned as a little kid Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I am telling you, I wish I could explain it better than the words I'll use, but God opened my spiritual eyes in such a way at that moment that I couldn't help but to cry out a simple prayer and ask God to forgive me. And from that day forward, October 1992, October the 29th, 1992, I have never gone back to living the life that I lived. I'm not perfect today, but I am saved and I live with a different level of passion. And that was like just a month or so before I stepped into civilian life. So God really changed me from the inside out. 
so that when I came into my civilian life, I was able to move forward. Did you already know at that point that you weren't going to reenlist or make it a career in the Navy? I, I did. You know, I, I, I knew that the Navy was good. I, I, I take my hat off the people who make a full career out of it. And even though there were moments that I really loved and contemplated about making a full go at it, I knew that my first enlistment would be it. So I had determined that I needed to figure out what I was going to do. Didn't know what it was, but needed to figure it out. But when I surrendered my life to Christ, it really was, I would say within just a couple of weeks, that God gave me a burden for students. I was only 22 years old. So he gave me a burden for students, maybe middle school age. So I went to school when I came back to be a school teacher because I wanted to teach and coach and actually help students not make the same mistakes that I made in life. Well, while I was finishing up my school, my, I, I'd gotten married and my wife and I were volunteering at a church a lot like Emmanuel Enid. We started volunteering in the student ministry. It was a church that her mother and father had started when she was only five years old. And now it was about like Emmanuel Enid in size and influence. So I was volunteering in the student ministry, and my old high school basketball coach was actually the student pastor. They were in a transition. He was still coaching and teaching, but he was leading the student ministry during this transition. So I was helping him out while I was studying to be a teacher. Getting close to graduation, he went to my pastor and said, Sean is your next youth pastor. He had no idea that my wife and I were praying of whether I would stay in education, pursuing education, or if I would go into full-time vocational ministry. I knew I was supposed to, at that stage, lead students, but I started feeling a real draw to leading them more in a spiritual way than just in making good life choices. And I wasn't sure that I could do that in public education. So through the influence of my old basketball coach, who was the interim student pastor, and what God was doing in my wife and my life as we were praying, my pastor ended up coming and asking me if I would consider being their youth pastor. And that was confirmation for us that God really was leading us in that direction. Mm -hmm. So the military was great, but I knew it wasn't going, at that stage, I knew it wasn't going to be my long life career. Thought teaching might be it, and it really is teaching. It's just in a little bit different way than I first thought uh, when I was studying in my undergraduate. So was this church in Sumter? This church was okay. in Sumter, South Carolina. And you mentioned your wife. Where did y'all meet? So we actually met at the YMCA in Sumter, South Carolina. So while I was a student uh, at the University of South Carolina in Sumter, when I got back from the military, I also managed the Men's Fitness Center in the YMCA and did some personal training. And because of my background as a rescue swimmer and formerly a lifeguard, I used to teach swimming lessons as well. My wife was a school teacher. She taught visually handicapped students. She, she traveled from, all, from school to school for all the schools in that district and taught students uh, that, that were either completely blind or considered legally blind. So she worked with the visually handicapped students from each school at every grade level. But she also taught aerobics in the, in the evenings after school at the YMCA. So I would see her coming into the YMCA and think, man, I would really like to get to know her, but was horrified. Uh, I'm, I'm now learning how to live a sober life, just getting out of the military, 
starting to get my Christian legs under me, walking with Jesus. But the the alcohol used to be courage in a bottle for me back in the day, so I wasn't really sure how to approach her now, a year into my sobriety, because I thought she was extremely beautiful, and I learned that she loved Jesus, and I just wasn't sure if she would actually talk to me. Uh, But through the encouragement of another friend, I finally, with the Lord's help, got up enough effort and said something to her at the Y. And literally from that day, we've been together ever since. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Well, I... The listeners know, and you probably know, that I've, I've had my own struggles with alcohol, uh, so I can definitely understand. In a small town, uh, did some of those uh, rumors and, and things about you growing up, did they follow you around? Was that kind of difficult to deal with? So a couple of times it did early on, but once people saw that the change in my life was authentic, and it took a little time for me to prove that, and I understand that. But once they saw that the change was authentic and that Jesus really was the Lord of my life, not just my Savior, but He was the Lord of my life, man, I started getting invitation to invitation to invitation to speak all over the place, which eventually led me into a lifestyle of evangelism for a number of years traveling the world. But I say that to say early on it did. As a matter of fact, the first conversation I had with Bonnie, who is my wife, I remember asking her in the weight room, introduce myself. She said, I know who you are. And I wasn't sure if that was a good thing. She said, I know who you are. And I said, okay, um, is that a good thing? She said, well, it depends. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm not a drinker and I don't party. And I said, well, I'm not a drinker anymore. And I don't party like she was referencing anymore. I said, would you like to go out for some ice cream and talk about it? That was our first conversation. And she said, yeah, I would. And then obviously we've been together ever since, as I mentioned a while ago. But in the beginning, she was nervous to say yes because she had heard of who I was in my pre-military days before I went off. I remember when I was student pastor at the church, when I first started, the pastor wanted me to preach the message the first week I was in the church as an encouragement to me, but also for the people to get to know me a little better as I would share God's word that day. And they put on the sign outside on the the main highway coming into Sumter. Remember, I was in the neighboring city where I grew up, and uh, this town I was in was really small, and Sumter wasn't a massive one, so people knew me in both towns. Well, they put on the church sign, guest speaker, Sean Keels, literally somebody from the little town I grew up in pulled into the parking lot and came in and asked the pastor if they were having some kind of work release program (laughs) so prisoners could speak that day. Now, please hear me. I had not been in prison, but this gentleman didn't know me after high school. And and, and in high school, I was headed really downhill. I was in a downward spiral uh, when I was leaving high school, I was the guy who could have been, but wasn't because of some of the bad choices. So he assumed, since I had been gone for about four years, because I had been in the military, and then here I was now on a church sign, 
that maybe I had really gotten in trouble and that now I was being on some kind of good release program where I could speak in the church. And the pastor said, no, he's our student pastor. And the man said, what do you mean? And he shared a little piece of my story. And the man was like, oh, this is phenomenal. So then I would eventually be invited back to my hometown and speak in a couple of those churches in that little town. And even went back to my high school and did school assemblies at the middle school and the high school, and then were able to invite them to a joint night program where I was actually share the, able to share the gospel as well. So in the beginning, there were some questions, but as they saw the legitimacy that Christ really reigns in him, then there were invitations uh, to be a part of what God was doing in the city, even through those churches. Well, it led to some opportunities. Yes, it did. <laughs> so, Well, uh, tell me a little bit. You said that you traveled the world doing some evangelism. How, what was that about? I did. So my wife and I were in Sumter for a couple, uh, about four years where I was a student pastor in the church that her parents started. Uh, we left there, and I went on staff at a mega church in nor- just northeast of Atlanta near Gainesville, Georgia. I was there for a couple of years as the student pastor. Then I was asked to come back to South Carolina to help a church plant. A, a church had just started. Some people that knew me knew that they thought I would be a good fit there. And I like the, the kind of the pioneer spirit really building something. So we went to a place called Carolina Forest, which is in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Lived there for 18 years. Well, during those 18 years, I served on staff at that church plant for 11 years, and it was one of the fastest-growing churches uh, in the U.S. at the time, and we saw phenomenal fruit. Lord Jesus did great stuff. But as a church plant, they really didn't have enough uh, budget in the very beginning to take care of a full staff, but needed a full staff because of the growth that was happening so fast. Well, simultaneously, back in the day, the power team was at its height. Uh, The team of uh, ex-professional world-class athletes that traveled the world and uh, did exhibitions of feats of strength and then shared the gospel and saw a lot of lost people come to a Christian event that normally wouldn't come listen to the gospel. The Yellow Pages' worst enemy. Yes, the Yellow Pages' worst enemy. We used to rip the phone books and, and, and break the baseball bats and lift telephone poles over our head, run through walls of ice, bend steel bar. If you've seen the World's Strongest Man contest, it was that but in a Christian environment because ultimately we did it to draw crowds so that we could actually share the gospel, believing that the gospel, as Paul said in Romans 1.16, is the power of God for salvation to all believe. And as he says in Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing, hearing the message of Christ. So we wanted to get the gospel out there, and this was the way they earned that credibility. So what my church did in Myrtle Beach was they allowed me to travel once a month with the power team to preach the gospel, and I received a little stipend for doing that that actually helped Uh, with what I was being compensated from as a full-time employee with a smaller salary in a brand-new baby church plant. So between the two, I was able to take care of my family, and it afforded me the opportunity to travel the world. About 11 years after that, uh, God really stirred on my family when my kids were a little older and could travel too, that we would actually step down from the church and go on the road full-time. So for six years, I traveled all over the world 42 weeks a year, Hmm. about 40 countries in total through those years, six continents, and almost every state in the U.S. 
solely for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Obviously, we did the feats of strength because that was why churches brought us there, so they could bring people in their church that normally wouldn't come. We do the feats of strength, and then we share the gospel. I got off the road in 2014, but until then, I traveled a total of 18 years, but the last six full-time. What was your forte? What was your expertise at on the power team? So when, when people ask me that, my forte was preaching. <laughs> now, what I mean is that was what I really—that was why I did what I did. I, I mean, I love to lift weights. I love the workout scene. I love athletes. But I really did it because it gave me a platform to share the gospel, especially with people that normally didn't come to church. But I was a bench press was my specialty. Uh, You know, I won some some bench pressing contests uh, through the years. And I also lifted with my body weight, uh, almost three times my body weight, which is considered a world class status. It was a little over two and a half times my body weight. Uh, before I, I really messed my shoulder up, I um, was getting close to the three times the body weight. So as a result of that, I actually used to do some exhibition bench presses in our show. And I would be the smaller guy on the stage because I'm six foot if I wear a pair of tennis shoes that have a good heel, right? And I weighed about 245 when we traveled. A, a fairly muscular 245, but 245. Well, the average guy on the team was about 6'3", 6'4", and weighed close to 300 pounds. That's the average. So if you take me on the smaller side, that means the bigger guy on the team's about 6'7", and weighs about 425. These guys, a lot of my travel with were mammoths. Most of them come from a um, an NFL or strongman background, so they were usually just naturally really, really large men that were constantly on the treadmill trying to lose weight. Me, I was on the opposite end. I was constantly eating, (laughs) trying to gain weight. In order to put on the weight to do what I did, I literally went through a number of years that I set my clock and ate about every two hours a day around the clock. Well, to put you said uh, almost three times your body weight. So yeah. To put that in the six hundreds. I was right at six hundred pounds. Wow. When that... I was bench pressing at the time, so my best what they call a raw bench. That means with no assistant of a, a bench press shirt was five hundred eighty five pounds. Uh, with the senses of what they use in weightlifting contests, so so that you protect your chest, so that you don't what they call explode your chest or, or chair, explode your chest or, or what, what will be tearing your chest. Mm-hmm. You put on these really, really tight shirts that actually, they do give you a little bit of a, a, a extra help in the push department because they're so tight. I was able to do about 615 pounds. with so it, so it added an additional 30 or so pounds in order to do that. But I didn't regularly bench with the shirt because they're very hard to put on and they hurt really badly. So my best, what what's called a raw bench press, was 585. What are you at now? So you're working out the other day. You did say you hurt your shoulder, so. So I had a full shoulder replacement on yeah. one side, like they cut it off and put a new one in there. Uh, I need one on the other side. So what I tell people, my bench press now is maybe once or twice a year. <laughs> There's not really a weight on it. I, I, I honestly just uh, work out today. To stay, stay in healthy. shape. Now, I, I am going to run with my kids for fun one of these Spartan races in June, but that's not that's more like a like doing monkey bars or, or push ups or something like that. 
obstacles in a run, but that's more just to do something with my family. So if you see me at the Y, which hopefully you will, at least three or four days a week, it is purely just trying to stay in shape. All of the weightlifting in the form of real weightlifting is all in my past. I did it then so I could proclaim Jesus. Today, the Lord's given me a platform without having to bench press. <laughs> uh, although I, I can't say I miss the working out part because I absolutely love working out. Uh, but more than that, I love the Lord. So I'm going to work out today, hopefully, so that I can live a longer life and have more time to do effective ministry. Well, you mentioned your kids. Talk a little bit yep. about your kids. So we have two girls. Uh, our oldest is 27. She's married. Uh, her name is Breland. She's married to Bryce. Uh, she worked for me on staff at Putnam City Baptist Church. When I got off the road in 2014, as I mentioned in the very early part of the podcast, uh, we moved to Putnam City Baptist Church in Northwest Oklahoma City. We're there for about seven and a half years before coming here. She was on my staff there as uh, our communications director. And when she had our first grandchild, our little baby girl, Indy, 11 months ago, just last week, uh, she stepped down from her position, became a full-time mom. Her her husband, Bryce, uh, worked at OBU in the Video and Technology Department, Oklahoma Baptist University, for a few years. And then uh, uh, recently, I I guess about a year ago, uh, transferred over to Crossings Community Church uh, over in Edmond, OKC area. And he's their video tech director in the venue uh, they have a couple of um, facilities on campus with different types of services. So he ru- runs the video and tech department uh, there, I believe is the official title, in the venue. Our youngest daughter is 24. She still lives at home and is finishing up school at, at Berkeley Music uh, College. She's doing it online in music production. She also worked uh, at PCBC. She led our student ministry worship team. And she worked part-time in the finance department as an assistant uh, secretary there. But when we moved here, simultaneously when we were moving here, she had just accepted an internship at Crossings Community that goes along with what she's studying in school. She's actually working in their music production department, and she's their keyboardist in the venue. Uh, I think they have two that they rotate because of the amount of services they do. So she's one of their lead keyboardists there and works in the music uh, production department where they write songs and things like that because they do some original songs Mm -hmm. there. And she actually lives here with us in Enid. So with it being an internship, she drives back and forth to Edmond maybe three, sometimes four times a week, and then she's here with us a few days a week. And when it's real late nights, because like Tuesday night they do a worship experience uh, there in the venue, she'll actually stay in Piedmont with her sister and brother-in-law to to keep from having to drive back so late since she has to be back the next morning. Well, so what brought you to PCBC from, I mean, you travel in the world, yep. you grew up on the East Coast. Uh, wh- why Oklahoma? So when I got off the road in 2014, when, when our family did, I knew that my body couldn't do the feats of strength anymore. And what gave me the platform to preach uh, in that ministry was doing the feats of strength. They, they went hand in hand. So there are no power team or team impact preachers that don't actually do the feats of strength too. There are some that do feats of strength that just give testimony because maybe they're not called to be a, an evangelist. 
but they're Christians and can give a story. But I was the preacher. So I knew when my body was really saying, you can't do this anymore, that God was calling me back to a local church ministry. And I knew one day that would happen, that I couldn't do that kind of ministry forever. Just didn't know when. So in 2014, we got off the road. Well, a, a guy that got off the road a little bit earlier than me was actually called to be the student pastor at Putnam City Baptist Church. So when he learned I got off the road, we're really close even to the day, when he learned that I got off the road, he called and said, we want you to be our associate pastor. Well, I didn't have a ministry assignment. I was just being faithful in my home church serving and uh, as a volunteer and asking the Lord, you know, what's next? So we said, we'll pray about it. Anytime someone would ask us a question like that, we would pray. And in praying, I had been to Putnam City when I was with Team Impact about three times. I was there with Team Impact to lead a crusade. I went back to lead an evangelism conference. I went back to do a youth conference at another time. So I had developed a relationship, not just with my friend, uh, you know, deep in that one, but with some of the people in the church and the pastor. So when the pastor and I talked and we prayed, we really believed that God was calling us there and that I would be his associate pastor. So I walked alongside Bill Holtz for seven and a half years. And I guess in the last year or two of that, uh, I knew the Lord was calling me back to a lead pastor position, just didn't know exactly when and exactly where. So I went to Bill and I said, look, I don't have an assignment. I just know the Lord's calling me in this direction. Would you pray with me? And a lot of times staff members don't go to their senior pastor and tell them that until they got a, a, another job, if you will. And uh, Bill and I were close enough, and, and I believed in him, and he believed in me enough that we started really praying together about what door God would open. And then this position would open up and show you how the Lord works. Bill Holtz grew up in Enid, and he was saved under the ministry of Emmanuel. And his high school sweetheart, whom he married, grew up, their family grew up in Emmanuel Enid. And then Bill cut his spiritual teeth as a volunteer in the student ministry here, and then would eventually serve at Putnam City, go a couple other places, and then come back as the lead pastor at Putnam City. So that's kind of the journey that brought us to Putnam City and also brought us to Enid seven and a half years later. So just some contacts you made while you were on doing the evangelist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, that's really interesting. Did, did you, uh, when you were here, did you have a, a general idea of Oklahoma? Like, I mean, it, even though you grew up in a farm community in South Carolina, it's still, South Carolina is still different than Oklahoma. I'll, I'll be honest, with the, it, it is different now. I will say this. And I, I, th I think after being here eight years total now, I, I think this is safe to say um, Oklahoma is often considered a part of the South. Now, where I was from, we called it the Midwest. But as I've been here, I, I do think there are a lot of similarities. So it, I understand when some people say it's a part of the South in that as I travel the world, I would often say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, to someone. And people go, oh, he's from the South. Now, obviously, they can hear a little twang in my, my accent, so I'm told. So they would say, you must be from a southern state. But what I noticed when I came to Oklahoma is people are very similar to where I grew up. People are really nice, in my experience. People are, are, will typically stop and talk if you talk to them. They'll wave when you're riding down the street. And I, now that I'm 52, most of those younger than me say, yes, sir, or no, sir. And, and they're very polite. 
where I didn't always get that as I traveled the United States. So away from the home that we grew up in, there are some similarities to what I experienced. And even the far, some of the farming areas that, that I've grown to understand, people know what hard work is. Mm-hmm. Uh, people understand the value of a dollar because many of them had to work really hard for it. So there are some similarities. Now, there also are some differences. You know, when I, I knew Oklahoma, when I traveled through it years ago, came, came here many times with Power Team and then Team Impact, it seemed to always be in the warmer months. So I always thought Oklahoma was hot. And in my estimation, it was dry because the southeast, the humidity is like, wow, it'll beat you up when you walk outside. So we always thought it was kind of dry heat. But man, and and when we're doing this podcast, just after we've had like three snows in a row, kind of, I'm like, where did this come from? We moved here in August of 2014. And I think it was uh, right around Thanksgiving of that year, we lost our electricity in in like for four and a half days because of an ice storm yeah and i'm like what in the world <laughs> last time i was in oklahoma is 100 degrees and we don't we, we have the humidity maybe not quite as bad as down there but we got the wind <laughs> right, you, you, so right, it feels right. like a blast furnace yes right? yeah well that's really interesting we talked about putnam city baptist church where you're at before and yeah. i told you before that that i uh, that's where i was baptized yeah. and uh, when i was young and and uh so tell me a little bit about that church in the in the 80s it was uh, kind of a uh upper class is the wrong word, but it was a, a more of that. But now I know in the last 30 years, the neighborhood at least yeah. around PCBC has definitely changed considerably. Yeah. Uh, it, has the church changed too, or is it still uh, more of a, a, a leads the wrong word, but you, you know, uh, uh, does that make sense? It is, makes 100% yeah. sense. So I would say it, it, it still has some of the personality it once had, but I would say it's, it's more of a middle and middle upper class, as well as there's some upper class. It's a, it's a good blend in my estimation. So when Bill uh, went to the church, uh, I'm guessing it's uh, trying to remember it's maybe 11 to 12 years ago, and that pr- probably 11 and a half years ago, and then I went about seven or eight years ago now that I've been here for a little while. When he went, there were probably about 250. May yeah, 250 people or so. So it was a really old church, and I say that very respectfully. Mm-hmm. In that, a, that there were very few, if any, young families and, and children left, unless it was grandparents raising their grandkids. So the church had lost a lot of people through the years for a variety of reasons. Because in the 80s, it was a pretty large church. It ran. A, it was one of the larger churches, larger Southern Baptist churches in in the uh, convention here, uh, the Oklahoma Baptists, and and definitely in Oklahoma City. I want to say it was somewhere between two and three thousand that were active in. Now the membership obviously was bigger than that, mm-hmm. but that actively attended on a weekly basis. Back then, in what they called Sunday school, which is where they kind of measured the numbers from. So today, when he got there, it was down to about two fifty-ish or so, and the Lord really used His leadership. And those that that were still the remnant, they refer to themselves uh, affectionately as, that were still there carrying the mantle that that many others helped make happen with the Lord's help, obviously. And over a decade, uh, Bill would be. A, 
Bill would build a team that God would use to bring that church up to where it's very close to the size of Emmanuel today, and its influence in that area of the city uh, and beyond is really growing. So God has done a really neat work, and the generations have blended. So it's a very multi-generational and and a multi socioeconomic, a little more toward the middle and upper, if you will, but but there's also uh, others there that um, would might not fall in those categories. So there's a good mix, if you will, of people, which I, I think churches should look like. We should all feel welcome. You know, I heard this saying years ago, and I absolutely love it in a lot of contexts, but this, it certainly fits. And that's the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, regardless of where we stand on the socioeconomic scale, regardless of our gender or our color or our nationality, before the Lord, we're all just people who need Jesus. And when we see each other that way, we can build a church that really honors God mm-hmm. and, and welcomes the and be, not just welcomes but betters the city itself. Well, when you were looking for a position, you were praying with your lead pastor for a position to open up. Uh, did you expect that it was going to be uh, in uh, uh, in Oklahoma City, or did I mean, did you just have no idea? It could have been in California for all you knew. We honestly had no idea. Uh, I, I knew the Lord was uh, stirring in. It's probably been two years or so ago. I knew the Lord was stirring in my heart. Obviously, my wife and I prayed through it a little bit first, and, and then I said, you know what? Um, we were integral parts of that team and what God was doing there. I, last thing I wanted to do was leave that church empty-handed. Uh, love the church, love Bill, Cammy, love the people. So I started meeting with Bill, and we started praying, and um Uh, As a result, I started letting people know in ministry that I trust and that he trusts. We started letting people know. And uh, I would learn about a church, and maybe I would look at it and and say, would this be good? And honestly, there were a couple of different churches that um, it looked like might be a good fit and I might go to uh, that I I really— my wife and I just didn't sense that this was what we should do. And when Emmanuel opened up— after I met with Bill, we really sensed that this could be where God was uh, bringing us. So I took my name out of any other search that was involved in at the time as some, some people were looking at us, so to speak, and said, no, we're going to we're gonna walk with Emmanuel for a little while and really see what the Lord does. And the, the further we got down that road, the more we were sensing that this is where God was going to draw us to. What was it about Emmanuel in particular that you uh, were excited about or you, that you really thought was a great opportunity? So one of the things that I love about Emmanuel, as I was looking at Emmanuel and even to this day do, is that it's a church that strives to leverage the influence it has to help get people close to Jesus. And I feel like our greatest ambition in life in honoring God, to honor God is our highest calling, but in an effort to honor God that he really calls us to reach people with the gospel and then grow them up uh, in their faith. So we should really be about reaching and growing. And as I've looked at uh, Emmanuel through the years and then started meeting with some of the folks about the potential that our relationship could grow into, I was really, when I say I, I mean my wife and I, 
we were really drawn to the fact that Emmanuel is an influential church, but they seem to be using their influence, leveraging it in a way to move the gospel forward and make this city a better place and the world as God would open doors in different areas. So that was attractive to me, and it was attractive to my wife, not just the the, the idea that God had given the church great influence, but they were using it for the sake of the gospel, and it really wanted to even more as God would open doors for us in the future. Now, is there a particular program? Because Emmanuel's involved in a dozen or more uh, ministries, both here and, and, and abroad, uh, that uh, that are funded by the generous donations of the congregation. Yeah. Uh, is it was there anything that you that you've you've been here a couple of months? Is there anything that you've been particularly excited about that you're like, man, that's a really cool program? So, so some of the things that I've noticed that I really love, and I, and and I'm just. Uh, trying to champion the encouragement to keep moving us in that direction and maybe even uh, fine-tune or add a couple of things to help us move even further in that direction. And that's our missions, whether it is across the street or whether it is around the world. I know we um, uh, we partner with, uh, in, a, in a massive way, Forgotten Ministries here. They're on the ground. They're doing a phenomenal work. Uh, we want to get more involved. Been meeting with Jeremiah and his team. We want to get more involved and help that because it's a ministry that's actually doing something right here in our city. Uh, I love the Celebrate Recovery ministry, obviously because of my background and some of the struggles I had pre-Jesus days. Uh, we helped uh, w- when I was at the church in Myrtle Beach. We actually started that not long after they started it out at Saddleback and really launched it. I was trained in that and we started it. So I really want to champion and encourage that because I believe there are more people struggling with various addictions today than people actually want to admit. So we need ministries like Celebrate Recovery uh, to do all that they can to provide a place for people who really want to say, help me, but they've not yet said it. So I I want to make sure we keep moving that in the direction. Uh, Even our staff, we want to model how important it is to serve our city. Uh, We're starting now to once a month look for a place. So maybe if you're a listener and there's a place in the city that you need some help, let us know, and we'll pray about whether this would be something we could do. Our staff, we're going to start going out once a quarter, uh, uh, getting some volunteers to run the office for us, and we're going to go out once a quarter and just serve in our city, whatever way that is. Uh, Next week will be our first time ever doing it, and we're actually working at the Mercy House, cooking some meals and be serving a certain area uh, of the city, some some families in that area, and things like that that the church was already doing, but maybe we'll we'll uh, add some more energies to it so that we can do something in this city to make a difference for the sake of the gospel and the good of its people, but also around the world. Uh, you know, we have uh, other ministries like in Niger and Poland and in Guatemala that God's opened doors through past relationships. We want to deepen those relationships and pray as God would bring more people to be a part of this vision. Obviously, when more people become a part of it, the finance part grows, which allows us to walk into more open doors around the world, uh, like uh, some contacts I have in India that we want to be a part of in in this jungle area where they're reaching tribal people that have never heard the gospel in this predominantly uh, Hindu area. So locally... And globally, these mission uh, areas. Uh, another area 
that uh, Emmanuel has uh, flirted with a little bit in the past, but we're going to put more emphasis in is the disaster relief teams that, that come out of Oklahoma Baptist and the churches in the areas that want to participate in it. Because the number of storms that are wreaking havoc uh, in our state and surrounding states that need help, um, the disaster relief teams that I've been a part of for the last seven years since I've lived in Oklahoma have done phenomenal work in rebuilding homes and lives and introducing Jesus to some in the process that didn't know him. So we're just uh, we're just too healthy of a church not to be involved in that. So that's something that we're actually going to really beef up in our ministry area as well. And there are others. I could go all the Pacific Island ministry uh, here is uh, Pastor Johannes doing a phenomenal job. But we've got some more volunteers starting to step into that area and come alongside him. And I want to do all I can to, to even direct more there because that population, that demographic is growing in our area. And we want to do what we can, not just to make them feel welcome here, but to help them find the Lord and actually walk in him too. Did you have any experience with Marshall Island uh, uh, folks and Chukis folks in your time in the Navy? Or was this the, your first opportunity to, to understand that culture and, and those people? So I'd been in the area of the world, if you will. And even in my mission, some of my mission endeavors after the military, but never directly with the Marshallese. So there are some customary things that are somewhat similar to some that I've worked with, but there are also some some unique um, opportunities that uh, I'll have to learn how to work through. But the beautiful thing is that we have Pastor Johannes and his wife, Yenny, and their family uh, that not only love Jesus, but are Marshallese themselves and have been immersed in the culture that that work as a part of our staff to help reach them. So there's some ministry things that we're able to help them with from an American standpoint in, in an American church. But then there's some Marshallese things that they're actually to teach and train us in that'll help us be more effective. So to a degree, I'm really learning that, even though I'm very familiar with missions in general and there's some uh, skills we learn that are transferable, there's still some, some distinct or unique cultural differences that Pastor Johannes and, and his family are kind of helping us with. Okay. Well, I got two more questions yeah. and then we can get out of here. So uh, the first is, is that as a... I'm I'm on that cusp of not being a younger person anymore. Gotcha. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, if you look at statistics around the country, yep. you see less younger people going to church. Yes. Uh, and there's, uh, uh, I mean, you could write a book on how, and right. you, you may have. I don't know. You've written a lot. I, I uh, written uh, on that but, yet. Uh, I've researched uh, it, but not written it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, of why that is, and uh, uh, but it feels like that uh, you know the generation with me and, and beneath me, uh, part of it is is that they feel a lot of judgment from the church, and they feel like uh, that, uh, uh, that if you're not a look a certain way or act a certain way, or if you've got some history like you had growing up yeah. and I have, uh, that uh, that you may not be welcome. And even I felt that mm-hmm. at, at some points. Uh, uh, do, you f- do you see that as an issue uh, in churches? Is that one of the main reasons why, uh, that it's harder to get? Uh, younger people in their 20s and 30s and uh, uh, to, to attend church? Or do you f- find that there's something else that's, that's driving that? I definitely think what you're saying can contribute to it. I also think, so I'm a little older, 
52 is not old in, in my book, but I am a little older than the generation you're referring to. So as I've done my research, I feel like maybe my generation and the one before us actually did not do as good a job in actually discipling the generation that's coming behind us. And what I mean by that is local church in general in America has struggled with what's truly called discipleship. We've done okay in what's called Christian education. If you are in the average local church, Christian education is what takes place in most cases. And what I mean by that is our classes, whether they're called Sunday school, community groups, life groups, uh, adult Bible fellowship groups, whatever you label them, where, where the big church becomes small in the sense that we meet in smaller groups and have one person that, that leads that group, facilitates it, or teaches it. In most cases, the local church in America has been designed, and this started uh, way back w- when the Sunday school movement first was launched with, with D.L. Moody and some of those that, that were in the generation before me and before them, really, that, that has just filtered on down. And that is that we have the church experience where the pastor teaches the whole church, but then when we get in smaller groups, you have these other leaders that teach and they kind of stay together forever. And if anything, we'll add another class with one person who does the leading with other people. So really, that's Christian education. That's where we're educating those that come to that class or that small group. But discipleship, if we really look at it from a New Testament, New Testament perspective, is where somebody like you or somebody like me who loves Jesus will get a handful of people who either don't know Jesus or just came to know Jesus, and then lead them to Jesus if necessary, and then train them up of what it means to walk with Jesus, and then teach them to do the same thing and release them to now go find a couple of more people who either don't know Jesus or just came to know Jesus, and lead them to Jesus and grow them up in the Jesus and teach them to do the same so that everyone who calls themselves a Christ follower is actually leading somebody in how to live for Jesus. So ultimately, we should have somebody investing in our life like Barnabas did in the Bible into Paul's life. And then Paul invested in Timothy's life. We also should invest in someone's. So local churches in America honestly don't have a very strategic plan to make that happen. In most cases, people trust Jesus. We just want you to show up, come to church, maybe give some money, try to stay out of trouble, and attend a class so you can learn more about the Bible. None of those things in general are wrong. But what I think that has done is grown a culture of people that it's easy for them not to be engaged in the church And if we're not engaged in something, we're less likely to remain a part of it. So over time, sitting in the back of a class, these people end up disappearing. And then the children that they raised up, which are now our millennials, they don't even really know what it looks like to be committed to a local church, much less actually really walk with Christ. So anything that remotely looked like a rule seems judgmental to them because they don't 
may, they've maybe not been taught the scripture in depth. Now, with that said, there are some that I know that are millennials that love Jesus with all their heart and know their know the word just as good as I do. But they still have that and, and as a generational thing. They still have that uh, skepticism of the, the church, if you will, and um, shy away from maybe the, the the formality of church or anything that could look um, uh, religious, if you will. So there, that's why I say there's not real one thing I think I can put my finger on, but I do think one thing is that, that we do have to look at the generations before us and say, okay, maybe the way it was done as a whole wasn't exactly everything that needed to take place. doesn't mean everything needs to change, but it does mean we need to look at some things that we might do better. Now, the, sec- the second question is, is that obviously you're following up from a lead pastor that, that was very well known in town for good and for, um, and I'm not, I'm not personally <laughs> saying he's bad, but, you know, some people had some negative opinions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what, is that a particular challenge uh, at, for you at a church like this and a community, a small community that, yeah. uh, and if so, is there anything uh, that, you know, how, how do you, how do you do that? I mean, cause, yeah. cause you, you and Wade are completely different people. Yeah. So what is that? And, and again, I want to be very clear yeah. that I'll ride for yeah. Wade uh, yeah. every day of the week. I think he is the least judgmental person yeah. I've ever yeah. met. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and he's he's gone above and beyond for lots and lots of people. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but with that said, I mean, there's obviously uh, some in the community that don't feel the same way. Yeah. I, I, I only giggle, and I don't mean it disrespectfully to anybody, but because I've heard some stories. Yeah. Okay. Let me just say about Wade and Rochelle Burleson. I have had nothing but unbelievable experiences with them. They are some of the kindest people to me and Bonnie and even our family that we have ever met. Even before I came here, when it looked like this is what was going to happen, um, he and Rochelle reached out to us and came to the city um, and, and met with Bonnie and I. We had great lunch and just really poured into us and allowed us to share with them. And we just really sensed from that that regardless of what anybody would say or might have been said or not been said, that we would have a really good relationship. And I've been here for two full months and three days. Uh, today's March 3rd, started January 1st, and we have had nothing but incredible experience with Wade and Rochelle. Uh, Wade calls me his pastor. Uh, when he's not busy doing what God's called him to do in his next season of life, he and Rochelle attend church here. They come in just like any other member would, and they smile, and they, they shake hands and hug people and say hello. And and then after the end of the service, they shake hands and smile and hug people again, and then they step out. So our relationship is great. They're reaching out to us. Their response to us, like the, the church itself and the city, has been incredibly positive. I am happy for what God has called him to do. And... Uh, not only have they received as well, the church has received as well, and the city. So we are really in a good place. We feel good about it. So you and haven't felt any particular not, challenges? Not at, not at all. I really have not. And I, I, I knew, regardless of whether it was Wade or somebody else, following somebody after 30, 30 years. That's a good point. So I called my mentor. I have a mentor as well. I believe people should pour into us as we pour into them. I called my mentor who I didn't know, 
um, when he was in seminary, attended Paul Burleson's church, uh, who was Wade's father. And so I learned a little bit about Wade as a high school quarterback and, and his family. And uh, my, my mentor, Dr. Austin, loves uh, the Burleson family as well. And uh, he, he never really said anything about um, you really need to pray because you're following Wade. He said, Sean, following a pastor, following a pastor after 30 years can be a really good thing or it could be a nightmare. He said, so you make sure God is calling you to Emmanuel Enid. That had nothing to do with who Wade is. Mm -hmm. It had to do with a man who had stood in and, and carried a mantle for 30 years. We prayed, and God revealed to us that God was clearly calling us here. And thus far, it has been beautiful from the church, uh, in the city, and from the former lead pastor of Emmanuel Enid, who now is an avid member, a, a, a growing member, a faithful member of our church, who calls me pastor now. And, and I would consider a friend. Well, good. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time, and yeah. I apologize for the technical difficulties. Oh, and, all good. And uh, we're really glad. Pick up a copy of the Enid Monthly magazine all over town. Uh, check us out at EnidMonthly.com, and be sure to subscribe and like the podcast. Awesome. All right. Thank Thanks. you.